everybody. Welcome to The Lawyer's Daughter. We're back for season three, which I love to say because it's just make-believe. I made that up. It's season three. I don't know. It's post-conviction edition is what we're in now. And I have the lovely and wonderful Gay Hardwick with me, who many of you happen to have affection for. I know this to be true. And I don't know if Gay knows how much affection you have for her. But um, I have told her and I have shared with her anything you've sent to me. I've passed along. And um, I don't know what she does with it. She might be making fun of you. I don't know. She would never do that. She's, she's too sweet of a person. But, but Gay, one of the things that captured, not only did you capture people's attention in the HBO special, which we can talk about in a minute, but because it was such a good story about you and Bob, and, and I love your husband as well. And, and it is Gay and Bob from whom I learned the, there was no lawyering at home rule, which I wish should, should be taught at every law school in America. You do not be a lawyer at home. Nope, don't do that. So when I first met them and learned that lesson, I was like, oh, where was this when I needed it? But uh, Gay, you showed up on the scene for us. You kind of just came out of nowhere in a weird way for all of us survivors. And then here we get to see you and Bob and you in particular being so strong in your victim impact statement, as was everybody. But, but what I liked is that you delivered some, some lessons, some schooling, as you might say. And you shared that amazing, uh, Gay's the one that had the paper metaphor, which was like a physical metaphor, which I thought was a really good example of how to bring, um, bring it to life. And also Gay threw in quotes about rape, which I thought were also incredibly salient and made such a good point about we could be here in 2020, but we're still here in the same stuck spot. So, so talk about like the paper metaphor, and then and then we could talk more about I'll be quiet. I just want to introduce you, but talk about how, why that was so important to you and, and any feedback you've received. Um, well, the, you know, I had decided if, if I was going to make a victim impact statement at all, that um, I wanted it to carry what I've learned over those 42 years, you know, and how. Uh, how the crime, the crime actually did impact my life, my husband's life, and um, I, I, I wanted people to, under, I, wanted, I wanted the judge to understand that. Uh, it, I did not want him to have any reason to be merciful in his judgment, not that he would have, he was a very good judge, but um, I was very serious about wanting to show in a way that anyone could understand um, how an incident like that could could impact your life and why um, you don't just get over it. You know, we're talking 42 years. And as we all know, all, all of us <laughs> survivors know, you don't, you don't get over it. You don't get over it. In, in fact, when, you know, folks that are listening likely know that you and I and Chris hung out at her house in the summer this summer or the early late spring, I guess it was now it all feels like dystopian to me. And we were talking and one of the things I think that I didn't understand and that I was very impressed with about you as a woman is that you were kind of a, a, a go-getter woman in your time by, by 22, I think you guys had decided to buy a house. Like you got it. You understood business. You understood how to drive your career. You had absolutely great skills in marketing like it 
I relate to that because it just, when it comes to you, it comes to you. Like, it's just what you know how to do. And you were really looking forward to one hell of a career. And it was, and it still was tough then to be that much of an independent woman. Like you had to actually put a stake in the ground. Like, no, I'm an independent woman. I'm going to be able to do this. And then, and then it was your, it was your, it's not even cognitive dissonance, but it was that struggle between this is who I was and why can't I get her back? Like, where did she, I want her, I want this person back. I, I mean, I feel that right now in my life for myself right now, but I, I absolutely understand that feeling. And I'm not sure it came through and there was so much going on the victim impact statements. I think that, that, that struggle you had, if you want to talk a little bit about it, because I think that is such an important struggle. And I, and I think we see a lot of sexual assault victims talk about that. No, I was that balls out woman. And now what the hell happened to me? I'm not her. Yes, I, I will speak to that. But um, going back to the paper metaphor, yes, sorry. For just a minute. Um, I did want to, to say that I chose that because I adapted that from a lesson that I had actually taught third graders about bullying. Ooh. And I taught it every year. And when I moved to sixth grade age students where bullying is even more prevalent, I taught it there and it was very effective. And I took the paper metaphor, which I had always handed the papers to the children and asked them to look at their paper and then to crumble it up and then to smooth it out. And then I would tell them we were going to do an assignment, <laughs> practice penmanship. And they're like, we can't use this. It's all, you know, it's, our, it's all messed up. <laughs> um, and so that's how I taught them about bullying. So I took that lesson then and adapted it to my statement. That's right. And that is a really good point because that's something that teachers, parents, anybody can use now the idea of you're still a piece of paper, but now you come with this, your history, the history of what's happened to you is, is written on the paper. Right. And, and so I, I wanted something easy for, for the message. I, and I knew that message got across every year that I, that I used that metaphor. So I used it. It's fantastic. Yeah. When you pulled out that Ziploc bag of the creepy, crappy, muckety muck, I was happened to be sitting right behind you, so I could see that bag. I don't know how well it showed up on camera, but I was just like, oh, this is what happened. Like, it's the ultimate entropy, right? It's just a closed system, and it just was just, just awful. It was such a good, it was so useful. Well, and as you pointed out uh, in your statement so effectively, the white privilege that existed uh, in in uh, Jody Angela's life, and for him to waste it, which is what what he did, and what I tried to show inside that bag was that that was opportunity that had been every bit as good as the other clean sheet that had never been damaged, you know. Um, but this is how it ended up through his sheer uh, willpower. And, and it was, it's a toxic, awful mess. It really, it truly, truly, yeah. And I think that, yeah, that it just, it was, it was a beautiful tool to use. And I think those kind of things are very persuasive, especially when you're dealing with an audience who might react to the topic um, viscerally, you can actually see the damage without, with just through metaphor, it's just extremely powerful, extremely. So, yeah, so that, anyway, that's how that came about. Then we can uh, go back to. Well, I would encourage all the teachers. You can reach Gay Hardwick. She'll give you her her lesson plan. No, I love the lesson plan for bullying because that still remains a problem. I'm, so that's you know it's, it it really does cover the spectrum, and I think it's really powerful. And I'm trying to put my phone on mute because I realized I didn't. Sorry, I just don't want to get interrupted. When I did um, 
teach that lesson, you know, the kids, you know, they understood it and I understood what happens to a bully that doesn't learn because that's, that's how I viewed the person who had attacked me at that time, you know, not knowing what he looked like or I, I envisioned that this is what the ultimate bully would end up being. Yeah, it's such an interesting way to think about it because, you know, we've all had the way we thought about him for so long. And until that last moment when he stood up and kind of reinflated, then I'm like, oh, there's our perpetrator. There he is. It's not this shell of a man that's been doing such a good job of looking like he was, you know, the leftover skin on a chicken wing. Um, no, he inflated his body. He stood up. He found his voice. All those things. And in fact, a few survivors have said that voice that he used that day for just all of those 18 words or whatever it was, is the voice they had heard before. Interestingly enough. I don't know how it was for you when he stood up. Well, I was surprised he stood up. Uh, you know, and as far as his voice ringing out loud and clear, that's the voice he used to wake you up. Oh, okay. That very, yeah, it was very, he, yeah, it was full-throated voice. There was no wimpiness about it. After mm -hmm. we heard all those I admits and guilties, that voice that day was full-throated. So, oof, to wake mm -hmm. you up, I, you know, I, because I, because it didn't happen to me, I forget that that's the first thing that happens. And that's, it's interesting. I've been talking with Rosebud a lot lately, and she said to her, quite possibly one of the biggest things that still scares her is that he woke her from such a deep sleep, a trusted place of sleep, that she was in her own world, in her own bed, in her own restful place, and that he just intruded upon that, that moment that we all take for granted when we go to bed. The only thing we've ever been afraid of is monster monsters, like, you know, the, the bed kind, the regular mm -hmm. kind that don't really get you. <laughs> so, yeah, sleep, nighttime is a horrible ordeal for years, you know, just... And, you know, during stressful times, even after decades, you know, whenever you have a stressful time in your life, for whatever reason, um, that particular stressor comes back of wakefulness and concern, you know, that there might be somebody in the house that that noise was, you know, someone. Um, even though, and, and not being sure if you heard something or and that's what woke you up, or if you just woke up, you know, from a dream. So that's why everybody has animals. So we have something to blame for the noise. No, 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 it's just the animals. It's yeah. not a thing. So, yeah. so, okay, tell me about this woman. Tell me about that juxtaposition of this, this woman that this piece of paper that you were, and you kept wanting to get back to the piece of paper. You wanted to be unwrinkled. I tried really hard. <laughs> I did for uh, you know about yeah. six, about six years after the attack. I stuck it out in in the uh, the uh, development industry, um, and I was you know a woman with a, a degree in business administration, a concentration in marketing, and um, so I was hired, and very quickly um, I was. I was put in charge of a lot of men who were older than me in sales and uh, women as well, as well. But also I dealt directly with all of the construction 
personnel because they had to deliver my product and I had to be happy with the product in order to, you know, to sell it and to <clears throat> you uh, tell people their houses yeah. <coughs> that the product was, was track was home, like new development. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, so, uh, there, you know, I was not afraid of any of the men and I always felt that I was treated fairly and, um, I, and I believe I was, but after the attack, um, the world looked different, you know, because I didn't know who the attacker was and it could have been anyone. Yep. And everyone I worked with was predominantly a man. <laughs> so, uh, and it could have been anyone. And so just the right physical type or a voice or, um, uh, some off some behavior that I sensed as feeling off now that I had become hyper uh, vigilant um, you know caused me a great deal of anxiety and then tr travel and traveling alone and developers you know they're uh, a lot of them try to save a buck whenever they can so I found myself being housed in company company properties you know, out in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Dallas, like a big, or, big or a big, yeah, a big vacant condominium project with, you know, a handful that are completed. And I would stay in the company condo, but I might be the only one on that site that night. <laughs> so it wasn't good. It wasn't healthy for me. And it just um, uh, created uh, just too much stress and anxiety and I couldn't be as effective as I once was because I wasn't fearless anymore. You know that so that's really important because I think I'm, I'm realizing that there are so many ways we don't support sexual assault victims and that we should because they, they do want to talk they do want to be seen the shame is something that um, they're wearing that they shouldn't have to wear because it's not their fault but the idea that you suspect a whole gender in the abstract, you know, like, like everywhere, there's men everywhere. Like, I, I don't even know what to trust. That, it is significant in terms of making the ground fall away beneath you. That you really don't know who to trust or who has those characteristics or what is it that this guy would be a rapist and this guy isn't. Like, yeah, I can understand that, especially in the world you were working in, that it would feel just so untrustworthy at this time. Right. I didn't know if, if I had offended some banker or some, you know, some framer out on the project and that that's what had uh, caused the attack. Um, and, that, and, and that was the likely thing for me to think was that I would have crossed paths with them somewhere in the industry. All of us. It happened in our case, even with the murder. We all start to go back and go, well, I must be somehow responsible for this. Like something, somehow something, like I thought for sure my dad and Charlene did something. They must have done something to provoke somebody. And so I could imagine after you've been bossing men around and you feel quite good about your talent and your skill set, but we know generationally the older men probably did struggle with it. Not all of them, some of them. I can understand you then starting to look at the landscape and say, I, oof, how do I... Have I been too strong? Have I been too assertive? All the things that women do to doubt themselves once once they feel vulnerable. Yeah. 
yeah, it was, uh, you know, uh, I think I was less tenacious about um, being, being blunt with some of the men after that, you know, and just telling it like it was because I was a little bit um, concerned that I might, you know, I might offend somebody that would, might cause them to, to be violent. And I mean, I never felt that way before. Right. Right. And that's the biggest point. And I think for anybody who's going through it now, feeling how your personal power has just been basically taken from you, because now you question what you're doing or how you are or what you've done. And, and that, that transfer, it's, it, it's, got, it's got to just feel so, I, I don't know how you picked yourself up. So you took a time out, right? You did a big time out in life a little bit did I took uh uh it the the anxiety just got unbearable after the birth of oh, yeah. the birth of my son and then my uh my second pregnancy during that uh during that second pregnancy my anxiety just went through the roof and I talked to my doctor about it and the the OBGYN who who said listen there's nothing wrong with you um we can't take you out on disability or or anything like that because you're you're perfectly healthy he goes if you think you know that you shouldn't be working because of your your stress or something i guess you'll have to go see a psychiatrist that's out of our you know our range of treatment so i left feeling disappointed in my doctor because i was really concerned that the uh, what the effect of that was having on my pregnancy of course um, I mean yeah um, I'm right there with you so I um I did make an appointment to see a psychiatrist not a not a counselor not a psychologist but I knew I had to get to a medical um a, a doctor uh, who with a medical degree capable of prescribing and diagnosing so um that's when I went and on my very first appointment I laid out what was going on with me and at the end of that appointment he said I'm going to tell you right now that you are suffering from post-traumatic stress that's never been addressed and he goes and you really um you know your assessment is correct that it can affect you quite negatively and we need to have you stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> you know, this kind of work and the kind of stress you're under could very well, um, you know, cause something to go wrong. So he wrote me uh, a disability letter, you know, that I, that I took to my employer and I left work. Um, what that did for me, it wasn't so much the money, but it, it gave me the opportunity to take the rest of the pregnancy off and still not, um, my employer couldn't fire me. That's right. It's a way to protect yourself during, so you, it, it usually bridges, I think, benefits and things too. There was some benefits, but you know, far, far less than my salary. I mean, I think it was, yeah. I don't know, 200 bucks a week or something. And I was making, you know, at that time in the early eighties, I was making, you know, probably five or 6,000 a month. Yep. So, 
and that was, you know, that was a lot of money back then. Yeah, it also, it should have bridged your health benefits too. I think disability is something, I think a lot of yeah. folks, anybody who's struggling, this is really important with Gay said that she went to a psychiatrist and not a psychologist. A psychologist is going to help you work through the trauma. A psychiatrist is going to help you be able to get up in the morning and brush your teeth and eat your food and not vomit all day long because they are medical and they can prescribe the meds that you need to cope. Well, that you may need. I don't want to say everybody needs meds. Right. Although, well, and he, in my case, because of the pregnancy, he couldn't prescribe any medication. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the only thing he could do was to change my environment. So, so I took his advice. I went out on on disability, and so I was off about five months, and um, you know. Everything about our home was happier at that point. I was, you know, rested. I had peace. Um, I was happier than I had been in years. You know, it was good for our son. Uh, we had a healthy little girl at the end of that pregnancy. And, you know, Bob and I talked it over and decided that I wouldn't go back. So we made, you know, we adapted. We sold the, the big house on three quarters of an acre with a swimming pool and, you know, bought a small house and a tract, you know, in Lodi near my parents where I grew up. Uh, and we downsized. I mean, our whole, you know, our expenditures and, um, and I stayed home for 10, 10 years. And it was, it was a good move for us. And it wasn't. Four what kids. we ever thought of. Four kids? Yeah, four. Four kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, beautiful. I mean, just a great family. Great family. But but a significant, like, I, I think as a fellow professional woman, you think you have this path and then boom, it's just what happened. I was so on track to go this place and then it all just shifted. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't have four children had I, uh, had that not happened to me. Um, Bob and I both had, you know, busy careers and I'm not sure what would have happened eventually to our marriage. We, you know, maybe we would have drifted apart because we both had, you know, consuming careers. I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, the, the effort went in a different direction and it, you know, it worked for us. Thank goodness. And, and yeah. so, yeah, that's a lot to say that you just don't know where the jury is going to take that. But if you are taking care of yourself, which you did, which is really good. I mean, I, okay, baby on board. I would have been really freaked out about that too. Like, no, get me. I just need to know I'm healthy. I don't want to screw up this child. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that responsibility is so heavy when you have that kid inside you. God, everything I do. So tell me, I, I've always wanted to ask you this, and I swear to God, in all those um, Thursday nights, we never talked about this. When you walked into that backyard that first day, Chris's house, uh -huh. I think it yeah. was HBO day, wasn't it? Was that the first day we met you? Holy smokes. So we, it was definitely a year later after we had started doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so you walked into, what, what was it like walking in? To, oh. Well, see, I, uh, I had been in touch with the HBO people for, uh, you know, almost a year at that point. And we had actually done the filming back in October of that. No, 
yeah, back in October of that year. And then they were in production. And um, at the time they did our interview, uh, Miles, one of the producers had said, um, you know, they have these little, these get togethers and there's, there's going to be a sort of a, a reunion of the cast um, in the spring, you know, when we get production wrapped up and would you and Bob come to that? And so I said, well, yeah, we'd love to come and I'd love to meet other survivors, you know, because I'd never had. I know. So yeah. It's just, yeah. I, I was really looking forward to it. And he said, well, we'll put you in contact with someone and, uh, you know, before the event. And then I didn't hear anything for a long time and I didn't know who to contact. I still didn't know any of you. <laughs> I know. It's so weird to me. <laughs> now, now I feel like gay is just one of my people. Like, Yeah. <laughs> I know it does feel because you know that happens that connection just happens and you just feel like you've you've known these people all your life because they they get it. <laughs> get it. I know. So um, yeah, so uh, I think just a, a month or a couple weeks before that um, that filming that in her backyard that event, um, uh, Grace called me from HBO and and gave me Chris's phone number and then uh, and gave me the date and time to come to her house and I thought well I have to at least get to know her a little bit before I show up on her doorstep <laughs> so one day I was walking the the nature trail over here uh, near my home and I just had my cell phone and I sat down by the river and gave her a call and we ended up talking for like two hours you know how that can happen yep Mm -hmm. and and it was really it was really nice it felt so comfortable and so right and then I felt I felt good about coming you know to to meet you all and to your house but it was still um uh you know HBO's invitation originally and um so they had asked if I would um wear a microphone because they wanted to film us being there for the first time and I didn't really think anything uh, negative about that because I thought, you know, everybody would know that they were there and um, that, you know, obviously Chris knew they were going to be there. And so I, I just thought that was what was expected and perfectly normal. But I didn't realize that, you know, this was quite a departure compared to your other events, uh, you know, your other get togethers. So it's yes, because we can be quite candid is what you're not saying overtly, but we, because it's, it's been kind of a safe space, not kind of, it has been a space, a safe space. And we are, if not anything, we are a colorful group of people, all with different points of view and some extremely religious and some not. Um, Patty Cosper and I could swear a lot. Uh, but yes, there's, it's, it's definitely a spectrum of humanity. And so, yes, it has been, it was a safe place where we could say anything. So, so I'm, I'm trading getting to getting to come and meet you guys, but I have to wear a wire. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Who are you? You're like undercover. So, so anyway, that's how that all came down. And I, and of course there was a sign out front of Chris's door that warned everybody that HBO was there and that recording was going on and all of that. So I was like, okay, well, everybody knows. And you know, I found out, you know, months later that that some of the the people there just weren't they weren't fully aware 
I think um, the wire thing is the way, and we're calling it a wire because it wasn't like there was even, if it was a lavalier, which I assume it was, it was not where we could see it. So I didn't know you were miked, Chris was miked, maybe Melanie was miked. There were a few people who were miked and we're calling it a wire because the rest of us knew we were recording, but we thought we were all focused on the boom. We saw the microphone moving around to different tables with the camera. So one of the jokes was I was with somebody who didn't want to be on camera. So every time that camera came over, we would start talking about things that we knew they couldn't put on any kind of television. Like, no, we're just nasty or rude or whatever. Because we thought all we had to watch out for is a gray, fuzzy boom mic. And no, it turns out we're sitting at a table there can pick up everything because you guys yes. have your bodies that we can't see. So that was the, that was the kind of, that was just one of the gotchas that I think did stretch beyond what I think. I think many of us thought was happening in the backyard that day. Yeah. Um, the good news, the good news is, you know, I, for the first time I was able to meet all of you and, and, cool. and the bad news is it was under those circumstances, you know, rather than, than a more normal circumstance. Well, it's uh, certainly, did you feel like it, it, uh, altered your behavior knowing you had a mic on you or did you forget about it eventually no i forgot about it you did that's the power yeah. of the lavalier mic that is the power of the mic you forget yeah. it's on you i just well it wasn't something that dang i mean they actually put a piece of tape um you know so so nothing was flopping around it was like this thing it was just they just taped it on there and i just went yeah it's under your clothes right you can't even yeah and so i i totally forgot about it and um because there was so much to to do to to hear and to so many people to meet and to speak to for the first time and it was like i just walked into like the best place ever it yeah the the environment is definitely it's it would it's like a it was like a high school beach party kind of feel where just people are milling around and talking to each other. You go get something to drink or Carol Daly always makes homemade ice cream and then there's food. And so you're, it, it, Chris's husband's always feeding us or people donate food. I think that day HBO paid for the food, but it just, it does have that. And because we're in a yard, you can move around table to table. And uh -huh. then Chris also has hiding places in her yard, which I love. Um, little hiding places out in the back, uh, gar mini gardens and things. So it's, it's a really relaxed setting. I mean, it's just so easy to be there. Yeah, it felt safe and, you know, comfortable. And it was, it, it, you know, we really enjoyed, enjoyed our afternoon there. I think, I want to say we were leaving on a trip the next day. We were. So um, we were a little bit nervous about needing to, to leave, you know, at a fairly that, you were like, God, I mean, we got to get up at four or something. You kept saying, we got to get up at four. I think it was really early or something. And I'm, yeah. And I thought, well, you're going to Paris. This is awesome. Yeah. So, no, let's see. We had gone to Paris the year before. Okay, the year before. Okay. Right after. We were, we were going on a tour of the South because my husband's from the South. And so we were going to his hometown of Lexington, Kentucky. And Bourbon. We were, yeah, we went, visited Maker's Mark factory or distillery, whatever it's called, you know, there's so, and the racetracks and, you know, tried on the hats at uh, Churchill Downs, you know, all the big, the big fancy hats, bought one for my sister-in-law, you know, we just did all that silly stuff 
and you know went to the Broadway on in Nashville and um, you know got got to see one of Charlie Daniels last performances which I'm really glad I got to see at the Ryman so that was that was a fun trip but gosh how the world has shifted since then since then I know <laughs> well now you can't go anywhere I know right so not to out your husband because I love me some Bob but I have watched him change in the last two years or yes I have been amazed at how for a lawyer put it that way because I had one um I am amazed at how adaptive he's been and how it feels like he can breathe now like when he first came in he was pretty tight and pretty guarded and now I watch him come in and he's just relaxed and I, and I even at times watched him kind of be protective of you how, how did have you experienced him without again don't share anything you don't want to share but he seems like he's changed too well, yeah, uh, I think it's, it's been, I think he's finally understood that, that there isn't a right way to handle, you know, what happened, that, that each of us um, do have to handle it in our own way, and that there's, you know, that his way, which he was convinced which was right, which was the bury it until it's gone way, um, and don't ever talk of it. I have two brothers that do that. Um, so yes, I'm very aware. <laughs> yeah. um, that, that it felt so right for him that that was the way. And that makes total sense considering the culture he grew up in and, um, and, and his family background. Where my need to talk um, about it in order to find my healing um, is, not, is not wrong either. And that there are many others now that he understands, um, you know, that it wasn't that there was a right way and a wrong way, um, and that he had he had accepted my way, but that still I think thought that maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't have that need, but <laughs> but now he does. He understands that. He understands how people can be different because he's met some who want who did handle it the same way he handled it and some who have handled it exactly the same way I have it, and he went I can't believe he went rogue I've never ever heard of a lawyer saying I'm throwing out my statement and I'm coming at you live with what I cooked up like much more ad hoc and I looked at his printed submitted statement and then what he actually said and he starts off you know kind of the same beginning but then he just converted over to i what i thought was incredibly compelling but i just got to know at home did he like was he ODing on chocolate chip cookies or what happened where he went screw this i gotta do the other thing like what what was there a moment or did it just it just kept going in the back brain or what happened well that's that's true bob that's what you know, Bob would, would, is the kind of attorney who will speak his mind in court and whether there is a particular expectation of decorum or not, you know, his philosophy has always been, until the judge gavels me down, I keep talking. I love it! <laughs> and so, you know, he will, he goes, my clients know one thing about me and that's that I will fight for them. 
And I think it was just purely, uh, he was doing for himself what he would have done for any of his clients. I, I was so, I, again, I was behind you, but I was like, he is not going off script. This is the best. Like, I just, it just whew, woke me up and he, I thought it just, yeah, it really just got me so, so fired up. Well, you know, when he first decided to make a victim's impact statement, I was surprised. And, you know, he knew that I wanted to. And in fact, when we had met several times with our San Joaquin County DAs, he had been very adamant about, I want my wife to be able to make her statement. And, but he never said, and I want to make a statement too. I have a few things to say. He never said that. So then uh, eventually, I think after doing the podcast with uh, Paige, St. John, the man in the window, mm -hmm. um, I think he began to understand why maybe um, more men should speak out and, and um, for the sake of, of everyone, you know, let society know that they are there and that they were, you know, they were damaged too. And, um, you know, they have different roles to play, but they were not just bystanders, they were victims too, you know. Um, so he said he was going to do it and he, he, he dictated it and I dutifully typed it out for him, <laughs> played the secretary, um, you know, edited the grammar and uh, I guess he's like, you know, he's like one of the, he writes like a doctor, it's all. Oh yeah. And, um, and then the night, be, you know, the night before the statement, he goes, I woke up in the night and he goes, and I know exactly what I'm going to say. And he goes, and I'm going to sit down here and I'm just going to write it up and I'll let you know. So he said, he sat at the bar in the kitchen and took out his yellow pad and just went to work. And he goes, after a while, you know, put his final punctuation in there and he goes, yeah, I got it. And I go, well, he holds it, holds it up and it, it looks, you know, like a doctor wrote it and it's all, you know, scribbled all over there. And, um, and I go, are you going to share it with me? He goes, well, sort of, I'll just give you the, I'll give you the highlights. And he did. He said, well, I have a, you know, fantasy sentence and I'm just going to tell him how I think it should be because, you know, I think for real justice, he should have to live the rest of his life like you guys live your lives, always uh, looking over your shoulder and wondering who you could trust and who you couldn't trust and when someone was going to break in and, you know. That, you know, it, after he was done, and I think this has uh, also resonated with people who watched, is that because he was willing to bring his man's voice to the courtroom about being a victim, not being the lawyer, but the victim. He brought in a metaphor and a way of talking about the damage and his solution to the problem in a way that uh, women aren't going to talk about it like that. Like he just made it so kind of transactional. Look, you did this, you get that. You did this, this is going to happen. It was so completely clear and different than what I'm used to hearing about women. Women are like, I just want him dead or, you know, we just needs to be in a hole or furthest away from all humanity because we just think, you know, just move them out of our vision, right? But I love that this is to me one of the reasons why we need more men 
male victims of sexual assault, and to me, he's a victim of sexual assault, even though his body may not have been sexually assaulted. But he, but his, what he brought to the courtroom that day was just fresh and different and tangible and almost visceral. And I thought that was really, really powerful because we just don't hear, I mean, Victor, Victor kind of brought that too in another way. He kind of went mano a mano as well, which is like, you punched me, I'll punch you back. And that's a, it's a, women, we aren't raised to think like that. That's not how we get even. We don't go deliver a punch. Mm -hmm. I've had a really lot to drink and then that's a different story. And I wasn't convicted. So I'm just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> just kidding. But so I really appreciate, you know, I hope, I know other folks have said that they appreciated him, and I was on this um, podcast where the people watched live and talked to one another, and I watched how they heard Bob. It was powerful because it just was a different voice. So I think the two of you together have brought a, um, a nice, I really want to say a nice point of view about two people who chose to continue to stay married, go through all the bumps and lumps and learning and everything else and good times and birthday cakes and all of that, and, and you came out at this end with really making a difference in how we understand these kinds of crimes and the impact it has on a couple, on an enduring couple. So I, I have a feeling that's what folks really, that's where they see you and, and hold you in regard for that reason and, and look at you as a role model for how to survive as a couple on something that's so difficult, not just by forgetting it, which I understand was some of the strategy for a while, but also team up now. You guys have together through hbo which he did it i mean you did he it didn't, and he, he didn't have to and if he had said i don't want to do this we wouldn't have done it so we talked about it a lot a lot and we had many conversations with hbo about what kind of a, a project it would be you know before we decided to do it and i ended up like leaving it the final decision to him I said well I I would like to to do this but if you don't want to then we won't do it and he was like well if you know if you want to do it then I will do it with you so you know that's we negotiated that out and um I think at that I think in the beginning uh he he probably would have uh if it wasn't that he thought it would help me in some way, would have not done it. Um, but now after the fact, I think he's glad that he did, did do it. And um, he's had extremely um, validating feedback from all, all kinds of people, you know, sending him uh, letters and, uh, phone calls and text messages and everything extremely positive. And um, I think he's, he, he now feels that, you know, you know, it is crazy to just sort of have society make you think you shouldn't talk about something. <laughs> you know, people shouldn't know something that, that of significance that happened to you, even close friends, you know. That it's truth. And that I think you keep forgetting. We're so in a, I, sorry, it's my hot box today. My, my soapbox issue is we just are in such a world right now where we don't know what's true. And so then you have something that's like horrendously true. That's impossible. But you have to be able to talk about it because if you can't talk about it, and, I, and it, we watch, I think in Chris's group, 
of which Gay is there regularly, so you can speak to Gay and Chris's group for sexual assault survivors. We see just the terror of being able to just say what happened to you. Like that, just saying what happened to you is so difficult. Yes. And it's, it's amazing. Um, I was reading one of the books that uh, Chris had shared with me and the catch 22 of if, you know, if you talk about it, you run the risk of driving people you care about away because they may find it too disturbing and want to distance themselves from you. And yet, if you don't speak about it to people that you're close with, that, that should know you and accept you for who you are, if you don't share that with them, then you end up keeping a secret. And carrying a secret is not a healthy thing either. And yeah, it, and I think secrets, there needs to be a bigger word for what it is, because it is a secret, but it is like cancer. It's this god-awful toxic, like I think, sorry, I'll be gross, but it's that feeling you have before you have diarrhea. It's that, ugh, there's yuckiness in me, I need to get it out. It just, it makes you feel sweaty and gross and icky all over the place, because, and you can't, nobody wants to hear about your diarrhea either. Like you just, it's not something you can share. Sorry, sometimes I'm a little graphic but the idea is that 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 is the difficulty is and, and that is my appeal to anyone listening is that you you got to make space to listen to people that need to get this out because they trust you they love you and they need you to hang with them as they and they may have to talk about it several times in a row because you still don't even believe it at first it's not even feels real and, and i've seen the sexual assault survivors say that so many times and in fact i have the same thing like as, i still have dreams that my dad's not murdered like it's so us to pretend like the thing didn't happen. Like, did it really happen? And, and in our case, it's, we got 40 years. Like, was that really what happened in my past? And yet, yeah, and you're, it's, it's right there. It's part of the baggage, man. It's right there with you the whole time. But it is easy to pretend like it's not. You know, you mentioned Rose earlier, and she shared with me a couple of documents that were dealing with um, implicit and explicit biases. And, you know, uh, implicit biases are the dangerous ones, really, because they're the ones that we all carry around that we are unaware of, but that, that we have. So, so we may not feel like someone tells us something very disturbing about themselves and our, and, implicit bias may cause us to then somehow treat them differently or look at them differently or see them through a stereotype that we're carrying around that we didn't realize we were uh, a, a, like a lens of a stereotype that we didn't think we did those kinds of things and so so there's been a, a lot of effort i guess in the last decades couple of decades and, and even recently in trying to get those, get this point across to people in law enforcement agencies. And, um, and I think to the wider culture, we, we have to uh, realize that there is this implicit bias against, huge against um, rape victims and the topic of rape. So this is so interesting because as, as we wrap up here, I want to come back to what I mentioned at the top of the of our discussion, which was you brought in these interesting quotes. 
into your victim impact statement that actually I'm sure people have reached out to you for them because I know I've had people requesting them and I just happen to have a copy of your statement. But why, what was your thinking behind that? Why was well, that important to you? I, it's re one of the things that has caused me a lot of distress in the last decades is seeing uh, the, uh, the, the threat to women's choice. And I'm not a big, you know, uh, pro-choice advocate. I don't go out and march or anything like that. But I just don't, I just don't think people understand that something so horrific can happen to a woman that she might have to make a choice, you know, about abortion. And so these pol political um, political statements are by are by representatives who are strictly pro-life in all circumstances, including rape. And I know what it felt like to have to worry for a month every day. You know, was I carrying some monster's child? Because back in, uh, you know, the late 70s, even though we had contraception, you know, there was still concern. You, you, you didn't have any quick pregnancy tests. You had, you know, you had to wait four weeks and have a blood test. That was the only That's way right. you could know for sure. And... Um, and I had to think a lot during that time about my life and how it would affect me if I found out that I was carrying this monster's child and how that would affect Bob and me. And there was no doubt in my mind that I would not, under any circumstances, give birth from that. I would not. And if it meant, uh, I guess for the first time, I understood why many women... Um, took their own lives or engaged in procedures that took, that ended their lives yeah. because something so horrific can happen to you that you'd rather die. Well, and, and the, and the choice you face, which is, I'm sure what you're speaking about as you wrestled with this is that our nature is to want to love any child that comes into this world. But, but how, how, how could my brain do that? How, how would I be able to, it's so different, like when you talk about your firstborn son and it's you and Bob, and it's like, of course, he's here. This is when he was supposed to be here. But yeah. I, I want, I figured all of you guys, and we haven't really talked about this, but, you know, lots of people asked, did anybody ever have his baby? Do we know of any births? I don't think we want to know. God knows that no child should have to know if he's a D'Angelo, frankly, at this point. I don't know that there were any, but I understand exactly what you're talking about. I, I mean, well, I want to thought about it because I was in college, but that's so different. That was my own behavior. I did that to myself, right? What you're talking about here is being assaulted and, and then having to make one of the hardest decisions you've ever had to make. Yeah. Well, I, luckily I didn't have to make that decision. Yes, thank God. So I, you know, I, my but, you, but you rehearsed worked, it. But, like we all do, but, right? Yeah. But I, I, I was in, I was being tortured by the, the, the worry for you know weeks following the attack it was another you know another part of the gift that keeps on giving you know 
from those from the attack. Um, I heard another victim in her impact statement explaining, and she was one of the youngest ones that she had, she knew she had been ovulating, or they discovered that at the hospital that she'd been ovulating, and so that you know, then there were other things that she had to worry about. It's just a child. Um, so anyway. I, I, I'd see these quotes and every time I would see them, I would think, you know, these are mostly men wanting to dictate what a woman has to go through with her own body. And in that case, in, in, a case, in my case, I was convinced that the person was, was insane mm-hmm. and demonic and um, there was no way. <laughs> that I was going to have those genetics coming into the world, you know? Right, because some people, it, people it, it are adoption. Them. No, even if you give that child up for adoption, you know what you've, you know how it was made, right? You know the DNA hot mess that, yeah, that's the so, part that's, ugh. So I just, I just felt all of these, these things are just, uh, again, um, dismissing the crime, and what it can do, you know, what it can do to a, a, to a human, another human being, an innocent woman. And, um, and I felt that we've, we're going backwards. Yeah, at this time. I loved it. I, I, so I, we need to wrap up. That doesn't mean we can't do another talk later. I love this. This was such a good discussion. I think, folks, um, if you guys want to get in touch with Gay, she is on Facebook in Chris's group. She's on Facebook generally, but you can also send me an email. I'm happy to pass them on to her, and then I let her reply at her leisure. Um, She's busy homeschooling the grandchildren these days, which is awesome. Uh, And what a good use of grandma. I swear to God, what a great use, because I love seeing those pictures of the kids. I want to thank you so much, Gabe, for coming on and doing this. You're the you're you're number one in my uh, new season three, the post conviction edition. So I'm super excited. Folks demanded to hear from you, and so I can cross you off my list now because I'm so glad to have you here today to do this with me. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and I wish you all the success with your podcast. It it seems to be moving along swimmingly. Thank you for having me. Of course. Venture Highway. In the sun